Good morning. This morning we will be in James chapter 4, but before we turn there, let me pray for us one more time. Father, we gather this morning for one reason only, and that is to worship you. Lord, you are our God. You are on your throne. You are sovereign. You are love. You are mercy. You are just. You are holy. And Lord, around this room are people who were once lost, enslaved to sin, living in darkness. And yet you, Lord, have found us You, Lord, have supernaturally saved us, Lord. You've cleaned us up. You've brought us into your family. And you've given us an inheritance that will never spoil or fade. And so, Lord, we look to you this morning and we say thank you. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to grow in maturity. That our faith would increase. That our love for one another would increase that our love may abound for one another. And Lord, we pray for the other churches in Knox County. We pray, Lord, for uh, the churches that are faithful, that are sharing the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would continue to provide and that you would continue to build them up. And Lord, for the churches in our area that are just false and spreading heresy and leading people astray, Lord, we pray that you would shut those down. We pray that that would stop. So, Lord, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Help us, Lord, to hear your word, and not just to be listeners, but to be doers of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jimmy Alexander. I am one of the pastors here. And this morning, we will be in James chapter 4. And today we will be looking at verses 13 through 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And today's message is all about the sin of planning and profiting apart from God. Now before I dive into this text, I would like to remind us of the context So James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote this letter to Jewish believers who were undergoing awful persecution. They were forced to leave Jerusalem and start a new life in foreign regions. That's why he says in James chapter 1, verse 1, it is written to Jewish believers who are scattered abroad. And so these Christians, they were discouraged, they were weary, And they were facing some very significant changes in their life. And so James writes a letter to encourage them in their faith. So anytime we face hardships in life, we need encouragement. Okay, in the valleys, we need someone telling us, hey, keep living for Jesus, keep pressing forward, keep doing what's right. And so when times get tough, we can either lay down and give up, or we can rise and overcome. And that is what James wants for these believers and for us, that we would press into Jesus all the more when we face tribulations. 
And so he writes this letter to remind them of what a living faith looks like. So in chapter 1, he tells us to rejoice in our trials. He tells us to ask God for wisdom, to persevere, to take care of orphans and widows. In chapter 2, he tells us to not play favorites, don't show discrimination, and to live out our faith in good works. And then in chapter 3, he tells us to control our tongues, uh, to seek after godly wisdom. And then here in chapter 4, he tells us to stop fighting in the church and to be humble and to stop being so judgmental towards other believers. And what James is doing here is he's showing us what a living faith looks like. This letter isn't just a list of moral ethics. It's not a to-do list of random proverbs. This is a letter that spells out for us what a true faith in Jesus Christ looks like. So if you want to know what a true faith, what active faith looks like, read James, and you will see it. So today, we arrive at the end of chapter 4, where James directs his attention towards arrogant Christians who are making plans and seeking profit apart from the providence of God. And this is a message that we Americans need to hear and if you are type A, or if you own a business, or if you have the heart of an entrepreneur, uh, you will feel this message this morning. But in all honesty, this is a message that we all can relate to, because we all have a tendency to pursue things apart from God. So James begins his argument, if we look at verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make profit. So at first glance, we might read this scripture and say, what's the big deal? Most Jews at this time would trade to make money. It was a very common profession. And to profit well, you would need to know where the hot spots were. Well, it looks like Corinth has a lot of tourists. Let's go there and make some money. But notice in this statement that there is no mention of God in their decision-making. There's no hint of reliance upon his provision. There's no consideration of God's will. No mention of prayer or fasting or seeking an open door or talking to wise counsel. Nothing. And so they have the whole thing figured out in detail, even down to the profits from the year's trade. And so this language here, it reflects two things, self-assurance and self-confidence. They assume that this plan and its success is entirely in their control. No thought is given to their dependence upon God and the uncertainty of life. And so what we have here are people who are making plans and seeking profit apart from the providence of God. They are guilty of self-sufficiency and self-reliance. They're not looking at God saying, Lord, Lord, what's your will here? No, they're looking at themselves saying, we will go here and we will make money. And they say that arrogantly and with certainty. And so what we have here is three main principles. First, God does not want his children making plans without him in mind. 
God wants to be included in our decision-making and in our planning. Secondly, God does not want us relying in our own human ability. He wants us to realize that our success and our profit and our security ultimately comes from Him. Not our abilities, not our talents, not our intellect. And third, God does not want us to speak about the future with certainty. Only God can do that. And as Americans, we are horrible about this. We live in the land of the free, and thank God for that. We've fought hard for independence, and the American dream is it's a wonderful thing. We have endless opportunities to be autonomous, to work hard, to build for ourselves a very comfortable and, and wealthy life. It's a great thing. But if we are not careful, this luxury and this attitude, it can subtly create in us an unhealthy form of independence, self-confidence, and pride. And then the next thing you know, like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, we are walking around our house saying things like, look at what I did. I worked hard. I made money for this family. I put food on the table. I created a successful business and a successful career. I'm so talented. I'm so smart and strategic. I put in the blood, sweat, and tears. And by the work of my hands, I have made this happen. I deserve this. And then we go further, and we plan out our lives as if we are in total control. For most Americans, every minute of our day is scheduled. Vacations are booked years in advance. Everything is mapped out. We have a one-year plan. We have a five-year plan for our lives. And then we talk about these things as if we're so sure of it. Yep, next year I'm going to go to school. Then the year after that I'm going to get married, and then we're going to get a dog. And then the year after that, we will try for kids. And then when I turn 30, I'd like to try to start my own business. And then at age 60, I'm going to retire. And listen, not all this stuff is bad. It's good to plan ahead. Proverbs 21.5 tells us that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. And so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. James is not condemning planners and calendars. Okay, we should plan, we should prepare, we should work hard and make money, but it's not okay to do these things without a reliance on God in seeking His approval, His guidance, direction, and provision in all of it. And so the problem isn't planning. It is planning as if the future lies in our hands. The problem is not profit. It's seeking profit as if we were the ultimate source of our own security and success. Yes, we're commanded to plan and work hard and steward the time and the money and the resources that God gives us, but all of it comes from Him, not us. He is the provider. He is the sustainer. He is the divine orchestrator of our lives. And so we must never forget that the only reason I can preach today is because God gave me the breath. 
The only reason I can move today is because God gave me the ability to do so. God was the one who allowed me to get this job. God was the one who determined my wages to the very penny. God was the one who provided for my family. He, not me, is responsible for every good gift that I have. And so we should all be able to say, I am what I am because of him. I, I can do what I can do because of him. I have what I have because of him. And so sin has so blinded us from this. We think we're so strong when we're really so weak. We think we deserve what we have, but in reality, we should be sizzling in hell. Then we make plans and we seek profit without ever giving a thought to God. Why? Because we're so full of ourselves. And this is nothing new under the sun. Israel, in the Old Testament, they struggled with this. They refused to listen to God's plans, and they established their own. I don't know if you remember, but in the wilderness, when God gave them manna to eat, he told them, he said, take just enough for today, and I'll provide for you tomorrow. And what did they do? They said, nah, we'd rather trust ourselves, and they stuffed their pockets full of manna. In Exodus 23.11, God told the Israelites to let the land rest Every seventh year, don't grow any crops. And what did they do? They said, yeah, God, that requires way too much faith. We're going to trust in ourselves instead. They just couldn't. And so they sidestepped God's will. They made their own plans. They trusted in their own strength and ability. And they neglected to in include God. And it didn't work out for them very well. And as a result, they suffered greatly. Now, someone might say, well, you know, I've done things apart from God, and it turned out to be successful. What's the big deal? Well, biblical success is not measured by money or abundance. Okay, Judas profited greatly from betraying Jesus. Balaam, in Numbers, he profited greatly by trying to curse Israel. Just because you make profit doesn't mean that it was God's will or that you have God's blessing. That's an important principle to understand. But you see, God is not interested in what you can do. He already knows that apart from him, you can do nothing. And so what he is interested in is your dependence, your faith, and your utter trust in him. When will we learn that God is most interested in our fellowship with him? Sometimes uh, people will go up to Jay, my, my three-year-old, and they'll ask him, hey, do you want to come over for a play date? Do you want to come over to our house and play? Do you want to hang out? And what he does is he never gives them an answer. What he does is he looks back at, at mom or dad, and he looks back at us, and he has this look on, mom, am I allowed? Can I have permission? What do you think, dad? What do you think, mom? He doesn't give an answer. And in the same way, this is what God wants from us. Okay, God wants us to rely on him in everything. He wants, us to, he wants to be the one that leads us. That was his original design in Genesis 1, when he created us, before sin entered the world. We were never meant to be the captain of our lives. 
Look at the tragedy around the world, all the pain, all the heartache, all the sorrow. It's because we have rejected God's lordship, his kingship over our lives, and we have attempted to play the role as sovereign. But as a Christian, we've given up that right to rule. A Christian is not someone who adds God to their life. A Christian is someone who gives up their life for the sake of Christ. A Christian is someone who says, God, not my will, but yours be done. And so we are people who have thrown up the white flag, and we've said, Jesus, take the wheel. You can thank Carrie Underwood for that one. And so James, he exposes this human tendency to be self-reliant and arrogant and to strengthen his argument further. He reminds us of the uncertainty and the shortness of this life. Look at verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes so here we are reminded of the uncertainty of life. You don't even know if you will be alive tomorrow, says James. And yet you talk like a fortune teller, as if you have the future all figured out. We live and we speak and we act as if we're going to be here forever. And we forget that none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow might bring. The economy could crash we could get into a horrible accident. World War III could start. Jesus could return. Plans are subject to change. And therefore, we are foolishly arrogant to speak about tomorrow with certainty. You know, in a moment, our lives could dramatically change. I've seen it. We are all one diagnosis away one tragedy away, one event away from living a totally different life than we ever imagined. Our future plans, our dreams, and our hopes could change in a moment. I have a really good Christian friend who is older. He's in his late 60s, and he's retiring, and him and his wife uh, has had this beach house down in Florida. Uh, that was their plan to go down there, and there's a ministry down there that they really enjoy, and the week they both retired, he was diagnosed with cancer, and his wife was diagnosed with, uh, I think it was MS or something like that, and he was totally shattered, and this is a strong, mature Christian man, and I was talking to him a few weeks ago, and he said, Jimmy, I just couldn't imagine <laughs> he was just struggling, and really, he, he, was, he was sharing with me how he idolized this future that he had painted for himself. And as Christians, our hope should never be in this world. Because if it is, I promise, you will be let down. You will be crushed and frustrated and discouraged. And in extreme cases, you will be mad at God. So instead of looking at the future saying, what do I want? We should be looking at the days ahead with our eyes fixed on God saying, Lord of the universe, what do you want from my life? Because his plan is far better than what we could ever imagine or muster up ourselves. And life is unpredictable. And even more than that, 
It's also very short and fragile. James illustrates this point by pointing to a vapor. He says, this is your life in the grand scheme of eternity. Your life is like a little puff of smoke that you see for just a quick moment, and then it evaporates. I was at the bank the other day, and there was this guy in front of me, and he hit one of those vapes, and there was this puff of smoke right in the middle of a bank that just went up. And like for a moment, it was like I couldn't see, it was crazy, but it was like three seconds later, this giant puff of smoke gone, just totally evaporated within a matter of moments. That is your life, says James. You may be young and healthy this morning, but you could easily be a corpse by sundown. And you might be thinking, well, Jimmy, that's kind of morbid, and I don't want to think about those things. But if you ignore these things, you will not live your life properly in light of eternity. And just in case you didn't know, the average lifespan is 77 years old. And George Shaw once said, the statistics on death are, are quite impressive. I don't know if you knew this, but one out of one people die. And if we truly understood this concept, and we learned, as the psalmist says, to number our days then we wouldn't be so confident in our own plans and our own ability. We wouldn't take for granted each day, and we wouldn't be idolizing our future. So church, as you live your life, as you make plans, as you go about your day and schedule your week, keep in mind that your life is uncertain and it is short. And allow this reality to kill the idea that you are somehow in control of the future and the outcome. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters isn't your career or how much money you made or how great of a reputation you, you made in this world. What matters most is this. With the allotted time that God gave you, did you live your life for Jesus? Now someone might say, Jimmy, this sounds great. I agree, but what is the correct way to make plans and to do business? Well, James shows us what that looks like in verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So here we are given the solution to the problem. Instead of making prideful plans and speaking like a fortune teller, we sh what we should be doing instead is saying, if the Lord wills. Now, let me explain what this doesn't mean. Okay, this statement is not some magical mantra that we tag at the beginning of a sentence to twist God's arm so that we can get our way. Okay, I remember I had a, a high school friend uh, who texted uh, a girl that he had a crush on in school. And so he texts her, and in his text, he says, hey, text me back. This is, uh, this is Dave. And he, he, he texts her. And then he says, if this is the Lord's will, she'll text me back. And I said, well, of course she will. You just told her to text you back. Or I had a friend once who already had his mind made up on a college that he was pursuing. And he went and visited that college, and he came back, and he said, you know, if it's God's will that I'm supposed to go to that college they will follow up with me through an email or they'll call me. And I'm like, dude, that's their job. I was like, of course they're going to follow up. 
That's what they do. And so the early Christians, they did not regard this phrase, if the Lord wills, as some ritual of piety that would validate plans already made. We should avoid using this phrase in such a manner. That is superstition, that is divine manipulation, and God is not happy about that. So what does this statement mean? It means that when we make plans or when we seek profit, we are looking to God and we're saying, Lord, I'm relying on you to provide. I'm leaning on you to show me the way and I'm trusting that you will direct my steps and show me clearly if I should be doing this or not. And what this expresses is someone who is ultimately concerned with what God wants. They're not interested in doing things without him. They don't want to waste their life away doing things that are outside of his will. So as they make plans, as they go about their day, as they live, they say, God, I just want to do what you want me to do. This is someone who realizes that they are under God's sovereign rule. And even more than that, they want to be under his sovereign rule. And so this is what biblical planning looks like. And don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we have to fast for a week and you got to pray for 10 hours every time you have a decision to make in life. Okay, that's, that's missing the whole point. What James is trying to teach us here is an overall lifestyle where we are looking to God in all things and trusting him to provide for us and lead us and show us the next step. And so we are no longer steering the ship of our lives. We are no longer on the throne. We are no longer autonomous dictators. We are children of God looking to our Father God. And we're saying, what would you have me do? And so I wish I could say that James ends this whole argument on a positive note, but he doesn't. He circles back around to the folly of this, and he ends with a rebuke in verses 16 and 17. He says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So James defines this whole issue as boasting in arrogance. Notice he doesn't say, hey, you're getting a little ahead of the Lord, slow down. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, you just forgot to include God as you were making your plans. Let's try and rephrase this. He doesn't say that. No, he says, when you do this, here's the verdict. You are boasting in your arrogance. That's the crime committed here. You are acting as the divine orchestrator. You are micromanaging your life as if you are in control. You are so sure of yourself, so confident in your plans, so certain of the outcome. How arrogant. Are you all-knowing? Are you omniscient? Did you create a time machine and travel to the future? How prideful of us to boast like this. And this reminds me of the parable in Luke 12 about the rich guy who stored up for himself crops in his barns, then he made bigger barns to store up more crops. He was so certain of his security and his wealth, so certain that he was going to live for, for decades further. And then God says to him, you fool, today I'm going to take your life. 
Now what do you have? And just in case we are tempted to think, ah, this isn't a big deal, it's okay to have a little self-confidence and put some hope in our future plans, James clarifies and he says, all such boasting is evil. There's nothing good about it. It's not neutral or an accident. It's not semi-bad. It is evil. It is anti-God and it is anti-gospel. And James concludes his argument with a short biblical principle to drive this thing home. He says, if you know what to do and you don't do it, you sin. And so you cannot take refuge in the plea that you have not done anything positively wrong. Well, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't fornicate. I didn't get drunk. I'm not doing anything bad. I'm just making business deals. I'm just trying to make some money. But as Scripture says and and makes it abundantly clear, sins of omission are as real and as serious as sins of commission. And so the failure to do what you knew was right leaves you without excuse. So as Voltaire once said, every man is guilty of all the good that he did not do. And so if you know it's wrong to make plans and to seek profit apart from God, and yet you do it anyways, you are in sin. We always think of sin as bad behavior, you know, drinking, smoking, cussing, adultery, and so on. But the whole essence of sin in its most basic form is this idea of living our lives apart from God. And so you could be the kindest, most moral, most productive person on earth, but if you are doing those things, even good things, apart from God, you are sinning. The whole essence of sin is independence. Sin is not just bad behavior. Sin is a condition. It is a realm of living a life neglecting God. And so God wants to be deeply involved in our lives. You might be thinking, well, God isn't concerned about the small details or the details of my business or my calendar. Yes, he is. We serve a God who's interested in you. He is a jealous God. He isn't satisfied with having just a few areas of your heart. He wants it all, every area, every department. We serve a God who wants to fellowship with us in everything, so much so that he killed his only son to make this happen, to give us access to him. At the end of the day, the Christian life could be summed up in this way. God wants to know you. We should be experiencing him, talking to him, going about our days, worshiping him, God, talking. So Proclamation Church, as a way of conclusion, I must ask, in what ways are you being self-reliant and arrogant Maybe it's the way you talk about the future. You are more excited and certain about your future plans than you are about the return of Christ. Um, And you're so certain about tomorrow that it will be here. And you put so much hope in your planning and you've idolized something that is totally out of your control. Or maybe it's the way you're making plans with no regard for God. 
You just plug things into the schedule. You just make decisions based on your own intellect and logic. You don't run anything by God, nor do you spend time trying to hear from Him. And you are excluding God in your practical affairs and daily life, forgetting that your life is no longer your own. You've been bought by the blood. Or maybe it's the way you're trusting in yourself, whether it's your intellect, your human strength, abilities, whatever. Whether it's a project, paying the bills, getting a promotion, starting a new business, expanding your ministry, you're thinking, I can do it. I've got this. It's going to happen. This is my doing. Instead of saying, God, thank you for giving me the strength and the energy and the resources and the ability to even do any of this. Thank you for providing all this for me, even though I don't deserve it. And so whatever form this may be manifesting itself in our lives, we have the opportunity this morning to repent and to ask God for forgiveness. And we have the opportunity to humble ourselves and start saying with a genuine, authentic heart, if the Lord wills it. And may we come back to a place of dependence and reliance upon God. And may we once again relinquish control and entrust our lives into the hands of a good father. Because God's original design for us in Genesis 1 was that he would be our ruler as creator, as God. But sin has caused us to be our own gods trying to be the dictators of our own lives. And that's not turned out very well for us. And so let us once again give that up this morning. As Christians, our trajectory in life isn't doing whatever we want to do. That's the old life of sin. A true convert isn't someone who just added God to his life. They are someone who has given up their life, who has exchanged their life for Christ. And so may we view our lives through the lens of Scripture, and may we leave here with this truth written on our hearts. And as we go about our days, may we be looking to God saying, Lord, if you will it. Let's pray.